If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43. That's page 945 of your pew Bibles, which you can find on some of the chairs. And if you don't have a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. Again, that's John 4, beginning in verse 43. What was the last problem that you had that you couldn't deal with by yourself? (sighs) Some people dipping their heads. You had to go for someone, to someone for help. You might maybe even think about you had to hire someone to help you. Okay, it could have been anything. Maybe you couldn't figure out your taxes this year, so you hired an accountant. There was something wrong with your car or your home, so you hired a technician or a mechanic. You were experiencing some kind of bodily pain or sickness, so you went to a doctor or a specialist. Now, unless the problem was immediately significant in an obvious way, if you're anything like me, you probably try to deal with it first by yourself. Okay, step one, you tinkered with the car. You tried to fix the leaky roof by yourself. Tried to resolve the stomach pain by changing your diet. You went as far as TurboTax would take you. Okay, but the problem persisted. It was serious enough, so you went for help. And now, depending on the severity of the issue, you go for help with differing degrees of urgency. Okay, my roof has a little leak and a tree has fallen onto my house. They don't rise to the same level. My stomach has been bugging me and the report is showing colon cancer. They evoke a different response, a different concern. You see, the urgency with which you go for help reveals something both about you and the problem and the person you're going to. Okay, this is serious. It matters to me, right? It impacts my health, my money, my home, my family, and I need your help because you're qualified to help me. Your experience, your skill, something about you, you can help me. Okay, you don't go to your urologist for a plumbing problem or vice versa, okay, different plumbing issues. (laughs) Okay, the level of urgency and who you go to, it reveals something both about the problem and them. We go to the people who we think can actually help us. Okay, when we carry a burden to someone, it's because we think they can help us. As you think about your last week or month, what kind of burdens have you taken to Jesus? What does it reveal about how you think he can help you? What is it that Jesus actually offers us as we listen to him? You see, who you carry your burdens to and the urgency with which you do so says something about you and them. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 43, if you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Beginning in verse 43, After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, 
since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked him what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. We begin in verse 43. After two days he left there for Galilee. Okay, what's the context? Two days of what? Where? You'll recall that Jesus was in Samaria. You'll recall that it's actually the beginning of John chapter 4 in verse 3 that Jesus leaves for Galilee. It takes him this long to get there because he takes a two-day pit stop in Samaria. Now, if you're a Jew, Samaria is not a place that you would regularly pit stop. It's not like going to the Grand Canyon on the way to California. Oftentimes, they would avoid Samaria even. But Jesus there, we saw while he was at a well, has an interaction with the Samaritan woman. She and then her entire family come to recognize Jesus of Nazareth, not just as a prophet, verse 19, but verse 42, as the Savior of the world. They, the Samaritans, right, these ethnically, religiously, socially moral outcasts, these unclean outsiders, they come to believe in Jesus, and they ask him, will you stay with us? And he does for two whole days. Now, this episode stands as a bit of contrast to what Jesus experienced in Jerusalem and what we're going to see him experiencing here in Galilee. You'll recall in the prologue, John 1, 11, that he came, that as Jesus came to his own, but they didn't receive him. Jesus went to his own in Jerusalem, but they didn't receive him. But to all who did, Samaritan included, us included, he gives us the right to become children of God. Right? The word became flesh and he dwelt among the Samaritans. They saw his glory. They understood that he was the father from the son, full of grace and truth. They witnessed it firsthand. As he took her, this woman, this adulteress, as he took them and he turned them into wells of living water. And then Jesus gives them two days, just a precursor of what they will experience for eternity. Now Jesus resumes his journey back to Galilee where he has, we'll see, it stands in contrast. He has a very different reception. We ought to ask ourselves, what is this episode or pericope doing in the book of John? It's doing two things at least. One, we see, very last verse, we're getting Jesus' second sign. Okay, these Signs are intended to reveal his glory, but on the whole, we'll see Jewish disbelief, though we will see one family coming to faith. And then secondly, the text shows us, I think, different ways that people respond to Jesus. Again, as it's standing in contrast to the Samaritans, Jesus' reception in Galilee is more like his reception in Jerusalem, less like his reception in Samaria, except for this one household. So the question we're going to ask of the text this morning is, why do people come to Jesus? This language, this invitation to come and see, it's 
regular in the book of John, we're going to ask, why do people come, I'm using this in a general sense, why do people come to Jesus? We'll see three reasons from the text. Some come to see a sign. Some come to ask for something. And thirdly, some come to receive salvation. Okay, some are coming to see a sign. Some to ask for something. Some are coming to receive salvation. Assign something, which is a gift, and then salvation. Now, there are, of course, more ways that people respond to Jesus. Some come to test him or to persecute him or to kill him even. But these responses that we see today, I think it's important for us to grasp, ostensibly, on the face of it, they all seem to be warm receptions. As some are coming for a sign, some for something, some kind of gift, some are coming for salvation. First, we see some people come to Jesus for a sign. To put it more crassly, some people come simply because they want to see a show. Like the miracle man is in town, grab your popcorn, let's go. Okay, this explains why John inserts verse 44. So again, we see 42, after two days in Samaria, he leaves for Galilee. Then John inserts this force into the text. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, verse 43 is easy to understand, okay? Jesus in Samaria for two days, he then goes to Galilee. 44 is not as easy to understand, especially given where it's placed. Now, we hear this phrase, you'll recognize it probably, we hear it in the Synoptic Gospels. In Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching on the kingdom of God in his hometown. People are listening to him teach. He's he's teaching with such wisdom, people are wondering, where did he learn this? And for some reason, it offends them, okay? They're incest by it. Like, we know this kid. We know his parents. How is he teaching us like this? It's incredibly bizarre. They get offended. They reject Jesus. Jesus responds, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown. Luke 4, Jesus, again, in Nazareth, his hometown, at the synagogue that I'm sure he grew up going to. Jesus reads from the text that day, Isaiah 61. After reading, he says, the scripture has been fulfilled in their hearing. Now the people are speaking well of him. They're like, this is our guy. This is our boy. Jesus presses in a little bit. He says, really what you want from me is a sign. What you're going to ask for is a sign. He reveals their unbelief. They're there for the show. He then says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. They drive him out to a cliff to try to kill him. Okay? There for a sign or show, not for the sun. Not your usual homecoming. Now, Jesus isn't in Nazareth. That's why it's kind of a curious place where this phrase that John gives us. Why does John put it here? The translators help us out, I think, by not rendering it hometown but country. There's this contrast between the Samaritans. When Jesus is in foreign soil, he receives real honor. They receive him as the savior of the world. What Jesus is receiving now in Galilee is basically a request for signs. They want a show. They're not asking him to stay with us. Okay, the Samaritans wanted him. The Galileans want entertainment. I think John wants wants us to pick up on this tragic and ironic contrast as Jesus is regularly rejected by his own and yet received by the outsider. Okay, So John inserts this, 44 gives us a clue as to the context. We see more as we go on, 45. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. 
Okay, that seems positive on the whole. Why did they welcome him? Because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they also had gone to the festival. So we find out that the Galileans who were receiving Jesus now, they were actually in Jerusalem, John chapter 2. And John gives us, he tells us about how the people responded to Jesus there. You'll recall John chapter 2, verse 22 to 25, we know now that this includes the Galileans. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, they don't receive and honor him. Jesus knows why. He knows what's in them. He looks inside them. He doesn't see saving faith. He doesn't see spiritual life. He doesn't see trust in Christ. He doesn't see affection for his person or zeal for his glory. He sees an itch to be scratched. A prophet prophet is not without honor except in his own country. This reception of Jesus, it's just a craving for entertainment. And in fact, we'll see in John chapter 6, Jesus is back in Galilee again. Verse 26, Jesus will tell them, you came looking for me not because you understood the signs, but because you ate the food. Okay, you want more of it, not of me. Jesus there will up the ante on what it means to eat heavenly bread as he tells them you need to eat me, my flesh, and drink my blood. It, of course, will be too costly for most of them. Most of the disciples will abandon him by verse 66. So we see the Galileans are receiving Jesus warmly, but they're not honoring him. They're receiving him not as savior, but as entertainer, not as king, but as performer. They've simply found something better to do with their Sunday morning now that the wine guy is back in town. Again, the contrast, the Samaritans hear a word and they drink deeply from Christ. The Galileans hear that he's back and they're wondering if he has any more of that wine. Here's what's important for us to grasp NBC. Here's what's terrifying even. It's possible to receive Christ and to not honor him. It's possible to enjoy Christ as some kind of showman and not to possess him as savior. Many have welcomed him into their hearts and have never actually communed with him. This is, of course, what nominal Christianity is, a kind of casual commitment to Christ, a somewhat regular going to church, intermittent service and giving. I suppose these people do this because it is giving them what they want on some level, some kind of social standing. Perhaps they think it's making them more moral. Perhaps they find it entertaining. You see, the casual Christians, like the Galileans, are getting what they want, but it's not actually Jesus. They receive him because they've seen signs, but Jesus doesn't receive them. John chapter 2, John chapter 6. But importantly, Jesus is not rejecting them. In fact, it's as he reveals himself more and offers himself up more to them that they reject him. It's the more that he reveals himself that they will say, I'm done. This is really nominal Christianity at its core. I'll take Jesus and this 
insofar as it benefits me as I define it. But the more I actually see of him, the less I want him. It's too costly. I just signed up for a show. Now we know, of course, that saving faith leads to something radically different. Trust in the Son, zeal for his glory, love for his people, submission to his will. Okay, but some come for a show. And here's what's just amazing about Jesus. Jesus was honored and received by the Samaritans. He could have stayed there, but he didn't. Okay, he goes on to Galilee. If I'm the Christ, I'm telling Peter, you can build one of those tents now you were talking about. Okay, the people here are nice. I didn't see any crosses on my way in. No one's been picking up stones as they've learned my true identity. Jesus knows what's in the heart of the Galileans, and yet he will go there anyways. He knows the Jews will reject him, and yet he goes there anyways. The Son came to us not because we loved him, but because he loved us first. He came not, John 3, 17, to condemn the world, but to save it. He deserves our honor. NBC, our aim, our desire should be to receive him rightly. How? By recognizing him as the creator of the world, John 1, 10. By receiving him as the son of the father, 112. By resting in him as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, 129. We welcome him warmly, not because we want a show or even because we want his benefits, but because we want him. We want to honor the son for who he is. God become man, become lamb. And as we'll see in this episode, there is none more merciful or powerful than he None more good or worthy than Jesus. Some people simply come for a show. And then we see that some people come because they want something specific. Okay, some people want something. This is a bit of a stretch. I'm just trying to keep my <laughs> sign something salvation. Some people come to Jesus because they want something concrete from him, his gifts. Now, this is not as bad as the first group, but it's not quite all the way to the third group coming to Jesus to receive him and his salvation. Okay, so we're improving, but we're not quite yet there, and we'll see actually the second person will move from the second group to the third. Verse 46, we see, there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. Okay, so we have this man. He's a royal official. He most likely works for Herod. Okay, Herod, the Tetrarch, it's like, he's like the equivalent of the, the mayor of Bartlett or something. That's how you think about it. This man works for him. He's an aide. He could be a soldier or something like that. We don't know. What we do know is that his son is sick. Okay, we can imagine kind of the steps as they played out. First, they probably thought it would pass on its own. Then they tried some kind of home remedies, you know, a little clove oil in the diffuser. Things aren't getting any better. Being a royal official, I'm sure that he had access to the court physicians, right? They saw doctors, probably more than one, maybe the best in the region. And as a child is getting worse, desperation is rising. Expectations are lowering. At this point, no mom, no doctor, not even Herod or the royal court can help his boy. He's going to die. But then, verse 47, 
When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him. Now, we don't know what this man knows about Jesus. It's clear he's heard something. Maybe he heard about his first sign in Cana. Like, if he turned water into wine, maybe he can turn death into life. Some people are saying he's the prophet. Some people are saying he's the Christ. I don't know. But maybe he can do something. Now, we as the readers, we know, we've read the prologue that this is the creator. That life itself is in Christ, that he is the light of men. But at this point in John, we haven't even seen any healings. This man goes with a hunch. He goes in desperation. If anyone can help my boy, it's going to be this man. So he makes his way from Capernaum to Cana. It's about 22 miles. Basically a marathon, probably on foot or on a donkey. And he goes to find Jesus because his boy is about to die. And he does with Jesus what we all ought to do with all of our burdens. He pleads with him. Verse 27 goes on. He went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Now, as a father, I can hear the desperation in his voice. My son is sick. We've tried everything. Please come to my house. It's not far. Please come and heal him or he's going to die. Jesus, please. Notice his concern, the man's only concern at this point is his son. Jesus offers an almost off-putting response. Verse 48, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, Jesus offers what sounds like a rebuke. Okay, his mind is not even on with the crowds. Crowds are concerned and he's thinking about his son. Jesus is talking about a sign. I think on one level we're to see this interaction as a bit of a mirror to Jesus' interaction with his mother. She goes to him, she requests, she makes the comment that the wine has run out. He offers a slight rebuke or rebuff. What does this have to do with me, woman? She persists in faith. We'll see God rewarding a promise to those who are persistent in prayer. This man pleads with Christ and Jesus offers, I think, what is rebuke. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, what does this mean? What is Jesus doing? Jesus, I think, is doing a couple things. One, we notice that Jesus is speaking in the plural. So this comment, this rebuke, it's not, it's not uh, exclusively addressed to this royal officials. I think we're to take it as to all of the Galileans and to Israel more broadly. Israel, unless you all see signs you won't believe, so you say. Okay, again, in John chapter 6, with the Galileans, verse 62, Jesus will tell them that even if they saw the Son of Man ascending into heaven, even if they saw him shooting up like a SpaceX rocket, they would not believe. Okay, there is no miracle threshold that Jesus can cross to create faith in them. Why? Verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh does not help at all. You see, if new life is going to come, it comes by the Spirit. It won't come just by a sign. Signs can't produce faith. Now, no doubt signs can be helpful. 
Jesus will use them as a means towards producing faith. We see that even with this man. But the Galileans saw signs with all of Jerusalem in chapter 2. They professed a kind of belief, but Jesus looked in them and did not see faith. You see, signs are not necessary for belief. Think about the Samaritans. What sign did Jesus offer them? He didn't. Why did they believe? Verse 41, many more believed because of what he said. 42, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. One of the things that we see in the book of John, we saw this in John chapter 2, we see this now, is that ministries that are built on signs tend to produce spurious faith. Okay? The foundation of a good ministry is the preaching of the word. If your main attraction is signs, what kind of people do you think you will bring in? This is why prosperity gospel churches are actually some of the most anti-gospel places on the planet. They're not even offering up real signs. False signs and a show, a watered-down word. Promise to give people what they want, leave out what they need. The problem is people always want to see signs. People in their flesh never want to hear about Christ. Paul tells us this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. You see, everybody wants something. The Jews want signs. The Greek Greeks want wisdom. What nobody wants is Christ. A perennial temptation for churches is to think that if we can just figure out what people want, if we give that to them, then they will receive Christ. So if we just soften up on this sin issue, if we just let go of some of these kind of outdated beliefs, if we champion the issue, the social issue of the month and the way that people want to hear it, if we just give them what they want, then we can give them what we think they need, which is Christ. No, friends, Christ is a stumbling block for all. Yes, we love, we speak prophetically, we stand for justice, we walk in peace. This is why we preach the gospel. Amen. For them to believe, we, they must see or they must have blank they're not going to want Christ. So Jesus' rebuke, I think, in the strongest sense is offered to Israel. And yet on the other hand, as we'll see with this man, a sign will lead to his belief. Jesus is, I think, correcting him, rebuking him slightly so that he thinks about faith in Christ. Importantly, though Jesus is rebuking him, he's reorienting him, he is not rejecting him. Jesus is not rejecting the man. He's leading him to faith. Okay, think about it again. Verse 47, he went to, it, went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son. Since his son was about to die, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, come down before my boy dies. Here's the difference, I think, between this man and the crowds. 
they are there probably confessing that Jesus is the Christ or a prophet, and yet all they want is a show. This man's there, his mind is on his son. I don't think he's thinking about who Jesus is that much other than the fact that he thinks he can help his boy. Jesus tells him, unless you see a sign, you won't believe. To put it crudely, I think this man in his response in verse 49 is saying, I don't care. He doesn't even respond to Jesus' rebuke about needing a sign to believe, okay? I get it, people are debating whether or not you're the Christ, but sir, if you don't come now, my boy's gonna die. Based on what I've heard, you're the one person who I think can help. Jesus, with this rebuke, is reorienting, reorienting him to think about who the Christ is because it matters. Sir, please, we don't have much time. I'm desperate. Now, this may rub us wrong. The man should feel desperation about his son's health. Yes, he should also feel desperation and more of it for his own soul, for his household standing before God. He should care about who is standing before him. Come to my house and teach us about eternal life because right now we are dead. I'm concerned about my son. Yes, he's about to die, but he's already spiritually dead. Can you come to my house and give us life? If I'm not asking too much, can you also heal my boy's body? Jesus' first response, again, I think it's a rebuke to get him thinking about faith in Christ because right now he's not. Jesus is telling him that for some, a sign will actually lead to belief. He's telling him, keep that in mind when you see the sign. Jesus' second answer is intended to lead him to faith. Verse 50, go. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Without taking a step toward Capernaum, Jesus answered his request and heals his boy. Go. Your son will live. In fact, he will live in more ways than the official understands right now. I think what we see here is a pattern for prayer. We see a pattern that endures in a person that endures in Christ. Okay, his pattern of faith is instructive for us. The man hears something about Jesus' character, his power, and his works. He goes to Christ. He asks from Christ. He is even rebuked and he listens. He asks again. He receives a promise. He goes forth in faith. The Christian life ought to be this pattern of hearing from God in his word, of casting our burdens upon him, of waiting upon him and listening more, of persisting in prayer and ultimately resting in the promises we have in his word. Go, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said. More literally, the man believed the word of Jesus and departed. You have to think that he left there with a smile. His heart was overflowing. But think about this. For 22 miles, he had a bit of a gap between promise and fulfillment. No doubt for him, the boy, the boy was healed immediately. The second that Jesus said, go. This man doesn't have FaceTime. There's no be real. 
He leaves in faith, and for 22 miles, he's living in a bit of a gap. He's traveling home until his faith is made sight, until he sees his son once again. You see, he goes to Christ in faith. He leaves in faith. Brothers and sisters, are you carrying your burdens to Jesus in faith? Jesus gives us the same thing he gave that man. Think about it. He gives us unlimited access. We don't have to travel 20 miles to get to Christ. He lives in our hearts through his spirit. He listens to us with great sympathy as our high priest. He speaks to us in his word. He'll even rebuke us if our soul needs it. He beckons us to be persistent. He even joins us in prayer. He ever lives to intercede on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, you will not beat down Christ with your prayers. You ought to pour out your hearts before him until it is empty that he may fill you up with his spirit. The same compassionate Savior beckons us to cast our burdens upon him. And the same powerful Lord speaks a word of promise to us all. You see, all that man left with on that day was the word of Christ. It was all he needed to get him home. He, of course, will come to see that when Christ makes a promise, his power is there to match. Brothers and sisters, we will one day come to see that all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Jesus. That every prayer we pray in desperation according to the will of God will be an eternal yes. That every prayer we pray for perfect bodies will be yes. For renewed minds will be yes. For righteous relationships will be yes. Our prayers to be free from sin will be answered yes. To be free from our foes will be yes. To live in safety will be yes. They will be answered with an eternal yes from God in Christ. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying you'll be healthy and wealthy today as the world defines it. You see, the prosperity gospel actually cheapens what God offers us in the place of Christ. It gives us false signs and fleeting treasures. What we have is exceedingly better. We get Jesus Christ himself and the fruit of his work. He speaks and sweet promises to us to sustain us on our journey. We know from his word, Revelation 21, that one day all things will be made new. We know, 21.4, that one day death will be no more, that grief will be no more, that crying will be no more. They will pass away. Brothers and sisters, the last tears you ever cry will be wiped away by the hands of God. As he himself brings us into eternal glory. The words of God are then given to us to sustain us on our journey back home. And when we make it to glory, the same power that kept the boy from death, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead will glorify us. Brothers and sisters, we can take our burdens to Christ knowing he is merciful and powerful to save, and he will. We often get glimmers of it in this life as just 
God sometimes brings healing to us, to our bodies, to our relationships, our minds, our finances. God gives us glimpses of his power. But what we really want, what we were made for, what we really need, it awaits us in heaven. What we don't want to do now is to confuse the Savior with his signs or his stuff. No doubt some people just want signs or his stuff, and they get what they want now. We want the Christ who heals, the Christ who forgives, the Christ who reigns. And in the end, we get both. We get the king and his kingdom. And in his word, he speaks better promises to us to sustain us on his way. This man, I think in desperation right now, the only thing he wanted was for Jesus to heal his boy. And as Christ often does, he gave him what he asked for and so much more. We come to our final consideration. Some come to Christ for salvation. Some come to Christ for salvation. That is, they come to Christ for him. Verse 51, while he was still going down, his servants met him. Just try to imagine it. Imagine what you're thinking and feeling if you're him. You've received this promise from Christ. You're making your journey back. At some point in the distance, you see your servants. You're wondering, why have they come out to meet me? Maybe doubts are creeping in. Maybe they brought terrible news. Maybe I should have spent my last day with my boy. You hear them shouting for a distance. You can hardly make it out at first. And soon you find out they're saying the same words that Christ did. Your son is alive. Your son is alive. Your son is alive. And then the official asks him a question. He can't leave what happened to chance. Remember, Jesus in his rebuke has reoriented him to think about faith. Verse 52, he asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. They answered him. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus told him, your son will live. Imagine if you're this man, if it's me, I am riding my donkey into the ground. Sorry, Peter. I am running until my sandals break, until my feet bleed, until I see my home. Right where I last heard coughing, where people were restraining their weeping, now I hear laughter. I hear the feet of my son running. My last image of my son, him lying half dead, is eclipsed by him running to me full of life, crying, Abba, Abba. Jesus gives the boy life. Three times we hear it in the text, your son will live, your son will live, your son will live. It's made possible because the son is life, John 1, 4. But don't miss this. It wasn't just the boy who received life that day. The purpose of the sign, the end of verse 53. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Right? The entire household. The children, the servants, the parents, exited family. They all come to saving faith in Christ. What I want us to see again is that You'll recall the man left believing in his words. There's a difference here. He initially believed Jesus' words about his son. He has come now to saving faith in Christ. As an example, we see this in Luke 
chapter 17. You might be familiar with it. There, Jesus heals 10 men with leprosy. He tells them to go to present themselves to the priest to show that they're clean. Only one man, a Samaritan, comes back to Christ. He comes back thanking Christ and glorifying God. Jesus says to him, this is verse 17, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Okay, he had initial faith in the promise of Christ regarding his son. He's now moved to saving faith. You see, it's possible to believe Jesus will do something for you and it not be saving faith. The royal official believed Christ would save his son's body. Now he and his entire family come to believe that he will save their souls. He starts putting together everything he's heard. That some are saying he's the Christ, the long-awaited king, and he is. That John the Baptist, whom his employer will soon behead, is calling him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and he is. Others are saying he's the ladder of Jacob, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Bridegroom of Heaven, the true temple of God, and he is. Look at what he did for my son. He must be the Christ. The Spirit of God blew through that house that day, and the entire household believed. I think we're to see, again, a parallel to the Samaritan village. There the woman leads her entire town to faith. Here a father leads his entire household to faith. One commentator says that faith is contagious. Think about it. When our desperation is met with solution, with the solution, it should be matched with an equal passion to praise God and to tell others. I promise you the father is not eager to tell his family about the scenery on the trip. Let me tell you how many lizards I saw on my way back. Right? Gather around. Let me tell you about the man who healed our boy. The one who will save our souls. Friends, it ought to be easy for us to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ because there is no better message to hear. Consider the father's own love for his son. He traveled 20 miles and humbled himself to plead for his boy. This is nothing compared to the love of our father. He sends his son not 20 miles, but from heaven to earth, not to live, but to die. He gave him up so that we who would believe in him will not perish, but have life eternal. That we wouldn't get what we deserve, but what he deserves. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're visiting us this morning, if you've never trusted in Christ, maybe you find yourself in one of the two other buckets. You've often gone to church, maybe regularly, maybe infrequently, because you think it improves you somehow. Maybe you go with family, but you've never actually come to trust in Jesus as your Savior. We would implore you this morning to think about Jesus Christ that he is God who became man, who lived on our behalf and died for our sins that we might be made right with him. Friends, we would encourage you to trust in Jesus today. Any one of our members would be happy to talk with you after service about the gospel. That man got infinitely more than his son back that morning. He got God. Then John ends his, this episode and this section, by adding this note, verse 54, 
Now this was also the second sign that Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Now John, as we've seen the first half of the book, it's called the book of signs. It's structured at least in part around these seven signs that are written into the book so that we would believe. We see that John 20, verse 31. Jesus' first two signs that are recorded are here in Cana. We see Jesus save a wedding and stop a funeral. They reveal his identity to us. He's the creator, the one who can turn water into wine. He's the savior, the one who can turn death into life. It's especially the second sign that John wants us to have in mind as we go forward in the book. That the son has the power to give life. We'll see this is because John chapter 5, the father eternally gives life to the son. The son then has life in himself to raise the dead and to give life. What we see with the boy is just a precursor for what we'll see in the resurrection of Christ. Just a shadow of what Jesus gives to all those who believe in him. In any case, the signs are there as a means of revealing Jesus' identity so that we would believe in him. Again, think about it. They're there so that we would respond. Jesus' first two signs in Cana. He turned water into wine. His disciples believed. He saved this boy. A family believed. Ironically, the most fruit came in Samaria where there was not a sign. The greatest fruit came in Samaria. It tends to be the places where people consider themselves to be good that they often missed God. May this not be us. With every sign, John wants us to stop and think about who Christ is and how we ought to respond to him. Respond to him. NBC, we ought to receive him by faith. We ought to honor him with our lives. We ought to cling to his promises as we walk home, eager for the day that our faith is turned to sight. May we live and walk toward that day. Let's pray.